Welcome to the 74th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Alma Katsu, author of the novel The Taker and the highly anticipated sequel, The Reckoning, which was just published. Alma's novels have been compared to Anne Rice and many other great writers. Stay tuned for my interview with Alma Katsu. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Alma Katsu. Alma's novel, The Taker, was published to great acclaim. And the second novel in the trilogy, The Reckoning, has just been published. Alma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Jeff. I'm really happy to be here. Sure. Well, the first thing I was going to ask, if you could read the first three or four paragraphs of your new novel, The Reckoning. Sure. Um, Okay. So it really takes up, up right where the taker left off. So um, we have the main characters, uh, Lanny and her new love, Luke, are in London. And um, that's where we are. We were nearly at the Victoria and Albert Museum when we saw the crowds spilling out of the entrance and across Cromwell Street, forcing our taxi to stop in the middle of the road. The driver turned to shrug at me and Luke, as though to say we could go no farther, as hundreds of people streamed towards the arched entry in a blur, blur of color and movement, like a school of fish, all there to see my exhibit. I stepped from the cab, unable to wait a second more, and my eye was drawn immediately to the tall banner hanging overhead. Lost treasures of the 19th century, it read, the dark print striking against the shimmering orange background. Beneath the words was an image of a lady's fan extended to show the white satin stretched over whalebone ribs, its leash made of silk cord with a tassel curved up like a tiger's tail. More treasured than the painted lilies and golden roses on the front of the fan were these words scrawled by hand on its lining. Man's love is of man's life a thing of part, tis woman's whole existence. Byron. Great. Well, if the, listener, if the listeners haven't heard about your new novel, The Reckoning, yet, can you describe what the novel is about? Gosh, that is the hardest question I get about these books is to describe it because it's they are sort of indescribable. I've, I've been calling them genre busters lately. And they sort of hit this middle ground between historical and um, supernatural and there's romance elements to it. But basically, on one level, these books are a love story. Um, It's the story of a a woman who's born in the early 1800s in New England at a time when women were, you know, their lives were pretty prescribed for them and they had very few options. And this is a girl, the main character, Lanny, who wants more out of life, but she doesn't know how to get it. And part of what she wants is the love of this man, Jonathan, who is extraordinary in every way. He's the richest man in town. He has this sort of preternatural beauty about him. But, you know, she's lost her heart to him and she knows that her life, you know, she'll never have him and her life will probably be ruined if she persists um, going after him, but she does. And um, and her life is ruined. <laughs> <laughs> she ends up falling in with a man who has, his name is Adair, who has these otherworldly powers, including the ability to grant immortality but there's a catch if he makes you immortal you are bound to him for eternity basically whoever 
um, immortality is conferred by means of um, an elixir. And whoever gives the elixir to another person becomes that person's master. And, and the, so the two are bound together through eternity. So Lanny sees an opportunity to get Jonathan back, her old lover back, by using this elixir. She does, and that leads to um, just endless <laughs> complications and puts her in a terrible situation, her and Jonathan. So by the end of the first book, and it's going to be a little hard to describe this without giving away a you know major plot right. point, she manages to contain Adair, Adair who's immortal, Adair who has these incredible otherworldly powers. Um, somehow she manages to get the better of him and to bottle him up. And she goes on with her life. This is all in the first book still. And... Um, you know, she has tremendous heartache, but at the end of it, she she sort of manages to turn the leaf and try to start a new life for herself, um, which she is doing with Luke. So we're back in the present day. Um, she's with Luke. We see her trying to start a new life, um, which includes giving away all of the treasures that she's accumulated in her 200 years on Earth. It's sort of a sacrifice um, to say, you know, I'm, I'm ready to cleanse the past and start with the future when the past catches up with her in a terrible, terrible way. <laughs> Great. Well, that was sort of a long yeah. round. <laughs> well, no, that's okay. That's okay. Well, well from interviews that, that I've read uh, with you, I know that uh, you worked in Washington, D.C., dealing with national security and intelligence issues. And when you first started writing novels, if I understand correctly, Agents were pushing you towards writing spy thrillers, which didn't really work for you. What, what was the process like for you to go from writing those spy thrillers to writing a book like The Taker, a book that has a, a very distinct and personal voice? Well, you know, it's sort of funny because The Taker is the kind of stories that I've always been drawn to, you know, kind of big sweeping stories that had, you know, um, that usually had some kind of supernatural element. I really love gothic fiction, so, you know, I've always been drawn to writing gothic stories. You know, I love bigger-than-life characters that are, you know, usually kind of bad boys, like many women, kind of drawn to bad boys. And so I loved all of those things. I started writing those stories when I was in my 20s. But um, once I started working for the intelligence community, I had to sort of stop writing. I was a journalist at the time, too. I worked part-time as a journalist, and I had to give up everything. So there was a, a gap of about 15 years before I decided to return to writing fiction. And I started writing the same kind of stories. As a matter of fact, The Taker was the first thing that I picked up. It was based on a short story that I had written in my 20s, so almost 20 years earlier. But as I, um, as I was writing, I decided to go back to school and I went into the Johns Hopkins writing program. And as part of that, you really do get to meet a lot of agents and editors. And it was at that time that I was getting a lot of um, uh, you know, recommendations to, to put the taper aside <laughs> and to work on espionage fiction, which, you know, I can't blame them because it was right at the same time, too, where sort of literary fiction was getting to be a harder sell to publishing houses and commercial fiction was really on the ascendancy. And I think they felt in good faith that they were giving me the best advice to really um, turn away from something that was maybe a little more esoteric and try to write something that would be an easier sale. But I, my heart just wasn't in it. And um, it's funny because now I was thinking of 
trying to write spy fiction on the side. And, you know, my editors and my agent came back and said, no, you know, your voice is really strongest in this kind of sort of supernatural um, fiction. And, and, you know, so at least for the the near future, I think I'll be sticking with this. <laughs> That's great. And so so what, what, what prompted you after that 15 year break to, to go back to writing fiction? Well, a couple things. I, you know, I've had a wonderful career in intelligence. Overall, I had almost 30 years, and I ended up being a very senior analyst for um, the National Security Agency. Um, I ended up going on to CIA later, but at the time all this happened, I was still with NSA. And I had a very, very stressful job. So for years, I was... Um, working, it's going to sound crazy, but any, you know, 15 hour days were short days for me. <laughs> and I ended up getting really sick. I developed a neurological problem that was just baffling. And it, it ended up, I had to stop working for a while while they were diagnosing it. And at the time, I remember thinking, well, you know, I may never be able to return to work. You know, what's the one thing that I've always wanted to do? I always thought I'd be a novelist. And I thought, you know, I don't know what the future is but I know what I'd like to do. And I, I wanted to go back to writing fiction. And then after I tell people, it's like sitting on a couch for 15 years, eating potato chips, watching TV and deciding you're going to run a marathon. <laughs> I started writing and it was terrible. <laughs> it, my writing was horrible. I realized how, how much work I had in front of me. And that's when I, you know, had the um, idea of going back to school uh, that maybe a master's program would get me in shape a little bit quicker. And how did that go for you, the master's program? Well, I mean, I loved the program at Hopkins. It's a wonderful program. And it was, it's sort of like tough love. It probably was like going to boot camp, you know, Marines boot camp. It got me in shape very quickly. But, you know, I'll also say that I don't think that a master's program is a panacea. It's, you know, I think it's a very personal decision. So I know a lot of writers sometimes feel pressure to be in an MFA program or an MA program. And from my point of view, I would say it's a very personal choice. It's not something that you have to do if you want to go on and write. Sure. Well, you mentioned that the Taker originally started out as a short story in your 20s. Do, do you remember at this point what sparked the initial idea? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I lived in um, in New England near Concord, Massachusetts, which I call the ground zero for colonial America. And um, it's a very interesting place. It's, you know, it's beautiful. You cannot you know, half my friends lived in houses that were built in the 1700s. Um, but it's also a very spooky place. I mean, you can't swing a cat without hitting a building that has some kind of ghost story associated with it. Or, you know, I grew up in a small town that had five cemeteries. I had a funeral home in one block in either direction of my house. <laughs> I mean, it, it was just spooky. So I was drawn also to writing these gothic horror stories. One day I was driving home from someplace and um, there was a terrible fog and I was driving through this funny bend in the road that was by a Christmas tree farm, believe it or not. Off in the distance was the farmhouse and there were all these old outbuildings. And as I'm driving down the road, I see this man walking through the fog towards me on the side of the road. But as I drive by and I look in my rearview mirror, he's gone. <laughs> now... There are several possible explanations for why this happened, but it just triggered the idea for a ghost story in my head of a man who's released um, 
from he was sealed in an outbuilding by terrorized villagers who who think he's some kind of supernatural creature and um, in the present day he gets released from it when a car strikes the building and destroys it and it, it became this ghost story and that story didn't actually make it into the final version of the taker but that was the the impetus for it this ghost story of a man who lives for 200 years you know and never has the chance to atone for his sins that's great well, what, what's the writing process like for you? Do you outline extensively or do you write more organically? Well, I started off writing organically. At, at least at the time I was in the Hopkins Master's program, they were very big on how stories had to come organically. You know, they they're, they don't gear you towards writing more right, commercial right. fiction. But when I tried writing spy novels, I learned very quickly that if you don't outline <laughs> Sensibly, you're going to write yourself into a lot of corners. So now I'm kind of a hybrid. I usually start out with a pretty good idea of where the book's going and what the major plot points are. But I really like having the room to surprise myself through the writing. Um, this was a little shaky in the second book when I was writing The Reckoning. We did a lot of revisions for The Reckoning. And right now I'm writing the third book, The Descent. And I have to say, knock on wood, it's going much better. And I'm just getting a lot more, even though I, you know, the book's been laid out, I'm just getting a lot more of these surprises that I'm really enjoying. That's, you know, that's really the only enjoyment from writing a book. Right. (laughs) Pleasing yourself occasionally. Well, you just mentioned The Descent, which is the third book in the trilogy, which will which will be published. And obviously, we're we're talking about The Reckoning, which is is in bookstores now. But have you have you thought beyond The Descent? Do you have ideas for other novels beyond this this trilogy? You know, I'm one of those writers that has the opposite of writer's block. I cannot look at something (laughs) without thinking of a book. So I have like eight book ideas. I think I drive my my agent crazy. So we actually have an idea for a book that's not directly part of the Taker trilogy, but is sort of a spinoff. In the second book, there's um, one of these deep flashbacks that talks about um, the origin of one of Adair's spells, one of his great spells. It's not the how to confer immortality, but another one, and I don't want to give it away. Um, and the, the backstory that's attached to it has to do with a group of heretical monks from the 1300s. And once I got that idea, I couldn't get the monks out of my head. So I actually wrote a book that's all about how the monks did what they did. And um, I showed the first 50 pages, pages to the agent, and he absolutely loves it. He thinks it's better than the taker. Oh, that's great. And so, yeah, we're really hoping that um, that Simon will pick it up once the trilogy's over. So that'll be the first book. But I have some other kind of weird, wacky books, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, good, good. So what what tips or advice would you offer for aspiring writers who would like to have their own novels published? Well, you know, the first thing is you hear the same advice from author to author. And so I'm not going to give you anything that's terribly original but I've really learned, especially now that the second book has been put to bed and I'm working on the third book and I've been out in the world touring and meeting booksellers and readers and, and all that, is that all this advice is so true. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, somehow I thought it might be a little different or my experience might be different. But I'm here to tell you that, that you know, it's like there's one path that every author has to walk down. And the sooner you accept that and don't fight it, the easier the process will be. So here's my advice. 
write every day. Writing is like a muscle. And, um, you know, it's like you're an athlete. And when you're trying to get a book published by a major publisher, that's the equivalent of being an Olympic-level athlete. And those guys don't take days off. You know, they're they're 100% serious about it, and you have to be too. So you have to exercise that writing muscle every day. And the second thing is to read a lot and to read widely, not just in the um, category or genre that you want to write in. But um, it's that reading that and analyzing as you read what made this book good. What was it about it that attracted me? How did they handle this very difficult sort of narrative device? Or conversely, why didn't I like the book? What about the book failed me? Um, that's going to make you a better writer. Those are probably the two most important pieces of advice. That's great. Well, well moving from, from the actual writing process to kind of uh, the book publishing industry and, and, and obviously, you know, really doesn't even need to be said that, that everyone who's kind of paying attention realizes that the book publishing is undergoing probably one of the, the, the biggest changes uh, in, in, in many, many years with the advent of ebooks and also with the, the what I would refer to as kind of the, the online uh, communities of, of book lovers, whether it be through book blogging or in this case podcasting or with Goodreads, uh, allowing those people to to have a community all their own. I'm I'm just curious, what, what is your thinking, uh, and 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 how do you as an author navigate that? Well, you know, it's it's um, it's like Dickens said, it's the best of times, and the worst of times, <laughs> right? There's so many opportunities. You yourself know, Jeff. I mean, you're sort of a podcasting pioneer, and I'm sure you could, you know, fill an hour just talking about the changes that have happened to the podcasting commercial. So it's like we're being assaulted on all fronts, just changes, and they happen so quickly. Something that worked a year ago for an author, whether self-published or traditionally published, to get the word out, uh, you know, to try to hit the mechanisms in the social media world that will help, you know, raise your book above the crowd and, and you know, aid in its discoverability, all that kind of stuff. It changes so rapidly. It almost changes every couple months. So, you know, sometimes I'm um, tempted to just go in a dark room, crawl in a ball and other times, you know, I talk to other authors and I hear about the things they're able to do and it just fills you with hope. But it, it it's almost like being a horrible schizophrenic. Um, <laughs> you know, you don't know whether to be happy or sad. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Well, well uh, just a moment ago, you talked about reading a lot. And I was curious, what books, fiction or nonfiction, have you read lately that have made an impact on you and that, that you would recommend? You know, if you'd asked me this like six months ago, I'd be much better since I'm crashing on the deadline. Well, even even the, though six months ago, I mean, it doesn't have to be last month, you know, books that you've read in the last several years that really that, that kind of stuck with you. Thank goodness, because I, I am so easy to be made to feel guilty. I've been feeling really guilty about not being able to read as much as I'd like to these past few days. So here's a funny thing. You know, I've been a big fan of Diane Gabaldon, um, and a lot of people have compared the, the Taker series to that, just I think because it's a mix of genres. But Diane Gabaldon, I mostly read her Lord John Gray series. So I finally, um, now with promoting the trade paperback, I've been on the road a lot driving, and I love to listen to audiobooks. 
And so for the last two weekends, I've been going through Outlander for the first time. <laughs> and I just love it. Although I'm really surprised at how much sex there is. <laughs> really a lot of I, sex. I, I, still, and, um, I still haven't read that book, but but I, I know that uh, Ann Kingman, who's the co-host of Books on the Nightstand podcast, I know that she's talked about when when she was working for Random House and she read the the first book. I think she like very rarely she called in sick so that she could she could finish the book. Oh wow! Well, that's a lot of insight. I know Anne. That's some insight into I know. her personality. <laughs> I mean, I was kind of surprised at how drawn out some of the sex scenes were. I mean, the historical is great, and the characterization is great, and the balance between the fantasy element in it. And the rest of the book, you know, was just so well done. I mean, there's an example of how you can really learn from an author who successfully navigated the sort of cross-genre area. Um, I'm trying to think who else lately. I mean, I have some standard authors that I just, you know, love. Audrey Neffenegger, you know, I'll read anything that she writes. The Time Traveler's Wife was one of my favorite books ever. And I was on assignment. I had just been sent to Norway, I think it was, for something. I'd never been to Norway. And I spent every spare moment holed up in my hotel room (laughs) reading The Time Traveler's Wife. I just could not put that book down. Um, And then I, I like some kind of obscure writers like Adam Hazlitt, who's only written one novel and a collection of short stories, but he's just a fabulous literary writer. And one novelist who's been a big influence on me is the Hungarian novelist Sandor Marai, who is very well known, maybe not as well known in this country. He passed away about a decade ago, and he wrote a book called Casanova and Bolzano which is just the most amazing book on love. I mean, he looks at love from every possible angle. I mean, that's what he does. He also wrote a book called Embers, which some people might be um, more aware of. And if there's one book that's been a big influence on the taker and my you know, how I just sort of keep peeling the onion back on what does it mean to love somebody? And, you know, and you look at the bad as well as the good. I'd have to say it might, you know, Senator Mariah is one of my biggest influences. Great, great. Well, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you wanted to, to discuss? Uh, I, hmm, that's a tough question. <laughs> where where, 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 can, so people, much, where yeah. can people find you online? Well, they can find me at www.almakatsu, and that's A-L-M-A-K-A-T-S-U dot com. Um, Until the end of this month, June, I'm running a contest to help people sort of spread the word about the reckoning. And there's a grand prize of a Nook tablet and even some modern day alchemy. I found a place called the Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab that actually does modern-day alchemy in the form of perfume, really (laughs) amazing perfume. So you can win some alchemy as well as a Nook tablet. And there's um, all the details for the contest are at my website, so I really hope people go there and visit. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Alma Katsu, author of The Reckoning, which is now in bookstores and available electronically. Alma, thanks for doing the interview. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to my latest podcast. If you have a chance, please leave a review of the podcast in iTunes. It only takes a moment. Until next time, read some good books and be well.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.